Magazines and Monsters, episode 51, Quatermass in the Pit from 1968. Hey, everybody. Billy D, a.k.a. Doc Strange here, back with another recording for the show. And this is going to be another film discussion. And it's going to be one of my favorites. And it's another Hammer film, as I promised to do tons of Hammer on my show here. Uh, definitely going to plow through as many hammer films as i can just because i love the uh, production company so much uh, i'm going to take a little break here and there you know throw in a few other movies uh, that i love as well but definitely want to uh, go crazy with the hammer because i love hammer and uh, there's another person that i am uh, acquainted with that loves hammer as well and especially uh, the film we're going to talk about today and that is uh, karen from planet eight podcast how are you karen hey billy i'm doing great thanks for having me back on the show Mm, yeah, I love uh, talking Hammer, and you know, you and I previously talked about the Mummy, which was mm. super cool. You know, Cushing oh, yeah. and Lee, and uh, really, really good cast there. And that's that's you know my favorite Mummy movie, and lots of good stuff about that film. You know, a straight up horror film, but uh, this film's a little different. You know, this film we're going to talk about today, uh, Quatermass and the Pit from uh, mm -hmm. 1967, and this was you know the third entry into the Quatermass uh, films that Hammer did, and. I, I really like it a lot, but it is in some ways a huge departure from what came before the first two films were, you know, black and white. And they were pretty much just, you know, straight up sci-fi where this one throws some elements of horror into it as well, which mm -hmm. is really, really interesting and, you know, really cool. And we'll definitely get into that here as we talk about this film uh, uh, down the road. But I did notice, too, I wanted to call to attention that uh, as of this recording. You guys over Planet 8 hit your uh, 100th episode. So, hey, congratulations. Well, thanks. Yeah. I, you know, we had a, a bit of a struggle getting to <laughs> the 100. <laughs> I know a few people know that I uh, uh, came down with COVID. Despite my triple vaccination and masking and everything else, it finally got me. So we had to delay the, uh, the recording for the 100th by a couple of weeks. But uh, yeah, we we put out our uh, 100th episode just the other day. Um, honestly, I think we were all a little surprised. It was like, wow, we actually made it to 100. <laughs> uh, but, you know, we're still having fun doing it. We still enjoy when we get um, messages from people, whether it's on Twitter or Facebook or the site, and uh, knowing that people are uh, in enjoying what we're doing and that they, you know, get a kick out of it. Uh, that's you know that's why you do it just to like have that sense of community and and uh, have a little fun with it so uh yeah it was it was a lot of fun to to do the 100th and uh you know we still got a lot of ideas so we'll we'll keep putting them out there yeah that's a great accomplishment i love to see when shows hit these milestones because you know just you know it's a longevity thing, but it's also it, it tells me that the, the hosts are having fun doing it. And that's mm -hmm. really what I that's really the only thing I wanted to do when I set out to podcast was I just want to have fun with it and talk to people about, you know, some movies and comics and stuff that, you know, I think are fun. And then they do as well, you know, so that's that's what it's all about. Just having a good time and getting to, you know, know people. And that's that's the best part of it. So when I see 100, I'm like, yes, that means everything's going cool there. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so back to Quatermass and the Pit. So what's your, you know, like when's the, do you know the first time you saw this one? Like what's your history with this one? So this one is one of those films, I don't know the exact date of when I saw it, 
um, but it was shown frequently. So I grew up in the, the central coast region of California and, and luckily we were able to get a lot of LA stations. And uh, mm. it was shown frequently on uh, KTLA channel five. And uh, they showed a lot of Hammer films, usually on Saturdays. They had a regular uh, show uh, for sci-fi and horror. Um, for a while, we had a horror host named Seymour. Not, mm -hmm. not everybody's aware of Seymour, but Seymour was there for a while. Um, we rotated through a few different people. Uh, but I know that Quatermass, in its version of Five Million Years to Earth, um, you know, the retitling for the U.S., mm -hmm. uh, it was shown many times. I, I want to say probably at least once a year. And that's how I saw it as a kid. And it really, it was one of those things where it scares the crap out of you, but you're fascinated with it. <laughs> you know, you got to watch it, but you're also just really, really freaked out by it. Um, because as you said, it's, it's, it's a combination of sci-fi, but it's got a strong horror streak through it. Um, mm -hmm. there's a lot of stuff going on, you know, that touches on the occult and possession, um, and, and, and very, very creepy. And there's a few moments of some strong imagery as well that really sticks with you, um, over the years. And uh, so I know I, I saw it many times as a kid and it became a, a favorite. And then as I got older, um, I think, it, you know, you move on to sort of the cable era and uh, I didn't see it for a long time. And then finally, uh, TCM, you know, Turner Classics mm. started showing it and it was like, oh, I can see it again. And uh, then finally, I, I was looking for it for years on uh, video and couldn't couldn't find it anywhere and then finally just a couple of years ago shout factory put out a really beautiful version uh on blu-ray which i highly recommend to anyone listening um just mm -hmm. looks gorgeous so that is probably more than anybody needs to know about <laughs> my history with, <laughs> with the movie but it's definitely one of my my favorite sci-fi films just uh Part, partly for the subject matter, but you know the way it's all put together, and I, I know we're going to discuss it, so I'll let it I'll let it go at that. Uh, but how about you? When did you first encounter this? This one for me was definitely I would say probably in the mid to late 1980s. Mm. Sort of the same, like on a you know like a, a different. Probably it was a New Jersey or New York television station that I got as a kid where it had like, I know one was called creature feature and I can't remember what the other one was called, but it was either like late Friday nights or Saturday afternoons. Mm -hmm. And they would show, like you said, some hammers, but a lot more universals than hammer. But sometimes, uh, you know, some of the lesser known hammers you would see pop up on there from time to time. Mm -hmm. It was kind of strange that they shied away from some of the earlier ones, but you know, I know, you know, like this one, there was, a point where Hammer started to get investors from the United States to start putting up some money to make some of their films, you know, so they could get a little bit more of a budget there. So, right. you know, I think sometimes, you know, when there was more uh, U.S. hands in it, maybe that's why we saw some of the other ones over here on television where the other ones that were 100 percent just, you know, British. That's maybe that's why we didn't. But, uh, yeah, yeah, that's that's definitely for me when I saw that. And again, too, 
I didn't see it for quite some time. But then, you know, when the Internet came rolling around uh, in the late 90s, it just it didn't take long to gravitate to, you know, the kind of films I liked and comics I like and stuff like that. So, you know, you just find out there's this whole other world of, you know, geeky people just like you that (laughs) love (laughs) love these things and just have an affinity for them and just want to talk about them and write about them and stuff like that. So, oh, yeah, that was and that was when I was just like, okay. And like I said, it was kind of hard to find. Like they just mm-hmm. put out that Blu-ray now, but for a long time, this was one that was hard to find. You know, you had sets out years ago of just DVDs even, and even video cassettes, I think in uh, maybe the early to mid nineties as well. You can find some of some of the hammers catalog, but not this one. It was a, it wasn't out there, you know, for quite some time, like not yeah. legally anyway, bootlegs, I'm sure, but not legally. Right. I know they, there were British versions, but if you didn't have, the right region on your mm-hmm. your player that's not going to help you at all so mm-hmm. um yeah we had to wait a while to get one over here it, and it's funny when you're talking about like the internet and and you know <laughs> you finally finally meet some people and know what you're talking about i i had an experience at a convention years ago um where this guy had all these magnets that he had made and uh he had a, a magnet for five million years to earth and I I grabbed it and I was like, oh my God, I was like, how did did you, how did you know about this film? And he's like, you know about that film? And it was (laughs) one of those things where we sat there for probably 20 minutes talking about the movie, Um, just because it was, and I think it still is relatively obscure, Uh, although I sort of feel like it's maybe having a bit of a resurgence lately, but it's, it's definitely not, you know. Um, like front and center hammer, like, you know, all the Dracula and Frankenstein and so forth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, there's no Cushing, no Lee, you know, none of those uh, guys in this one. Um, but there are, you know, you know, several really good actors and actresses in this one that uh, had multiple hammer appearances and we'll oh, get yes. to those. We'll get to them in a minute here, but uh, it was interesting too. Like I had forgotten that this wasn't directed by, you know, one of the, kind of hammer stalwarts you think of when you think of directors this was mm-hmm. roy ward baker and he had a lot of credits up to this point and i know uh when in things i was reading about it that you know they really wanted to you know bring somebody in that uh you know had some big movie experience and that's why they got him because the previous director uh val guest who had done the first two films wasn't available so that's why they brought this guy in. okay yeah yeah i kind of knew that he wasn't uh part of the hammer family so to speak Mm-hmm. So, it's that's in- interesting. Yeah, it's interesting when you look at his credits, though. Once he did this movie, you look at his credits afterwards, and he did a couple more Hammer films, and then he did some Amicus films, and <laughs> he, he kind of went <laughs> went went down the sci-fi horror road here for a few years after huh. after he got this one in there. But before that, I I couldn't see any uh, that were even remotely, you know, mostly just adventure or thrillers or. You know, uh, I mean, maybe even a romance film or two, but it was it was definitely nothing of this magnitude. But then after this, I think he got a taste for it. it was like, hey, you know, this, is, <laughs> this is kind of fun doing these films. This is my thing. <laughs> yeah. And these were, you know, uh, based off of TV serials for uh, right. that were on the BBC. Uh, Nigel Neal was the uh, original story and screenplay. And then, you know, the, I haven't seen those yet and I really want to. And I think you can actually find some of them online and I will be setting some time aside to watch them eventually. Uh, but uh, I do I do need to see those because a few of my friends from across the pond, as they say, 
some of them tell me they think the TV serials are even better than the films. And that just makes me like, oh, I'm like watering at the mouth like, oh, I got to see these because <laughs> I really like the films. <laughs> that's that's what I've heard as well. And I, I just like you, it's a matter of like setting aside the time. I, I've heard that, oh, you can go on YouTube and, you know, you can find them and, you know, put piece together the, the different uh uh, parts to these these uh, serials and it's like okay and you know I intend to at some point I just haven't gotten around to it but I I know that uh, you know there are some differences between the the versions the TV and the film versions because they have mm -hmm. a little more time for the the TV ones uh, mm -hmm. they have to chop some stuff out for the films but uh, it is interesting I, that uh, the writer I mean it's the same writer for the TV versions as for this, uh, this film worked mm -hmm. on it. So hopefully, I mean, you would assume that the overall vision may remain the same, you know, mm -hmm. but yeah, yeah I'd, I'd, I'd love to see those one of these days when I have a little more time on my hands. Yeah, I think what needs to happen is my job needs to fire me, but agree to still pay me as if I'm working. And then I can just read and watch stuff all the time. Yeah, wouldn't that, wouldn't it be nice to somehow get paid for doing nothing or, or paid for you know, podcasting? That would mm -hmm. be even better. But so far yeah. that hasn't happened. So Yeah, I'll let them even sponsor me. I'll even do commercials for them on my show if they'll just... Just let me alone. Let me just keep like maybe it could be like an accounting error. Well, I'll, I'll get fired, but they'll not know accounting an accounting <laughs> error, and they'll just keep paying me. I'll be like, all right. There you go. <laughs> Sounds like a plan. Yeah, wishful thinking here, but mm -hmm. all right. So why don't we dive into the cast? So uh, okay. I would say first and foremost, you know, it's the movies. You know, Quatermass in the Pit. So you would see uh, Professor Bernard Quatermass, uh, and he was played by uh, Andrew Kerr in this one, and he had previously been played by a different guy. And um, you know, when I was looking again behind the the scenes here, I was always wondering why you know there was a switch, and I guess you know uh, the, some of the people behind the scenes didn't really care for the original actor Brian Don Levy, so they you know right. thought, hey, there was there was actually. Wow, like what about eight years, nine years between the second mm -hmm. film and this third one? So, you know, the guy was like, hey, we can recast, uh, you know, nobody will even care now because it's been so many years, <laughs> <laughs> which is a good point, you know, and I'm sure nobody really did because I'm not sure. There were some points in the first two films when I kind of felt like the actor, either he was going out of his way to be a jerk or that's just his personality coming through. Like it, it felt a little forced him kind of being snippy with people and being like kind of jerky. But um, I thought uh, this uh, was wonderful. Andrew Kerr. I liked him a lot in this one. What did you think? Oh yeah. I, I, I liked him and I remembered him from uh, Dracula Prince of Darkness mm, uh, as mm -hmm. Father Sandor. Right. And yep. So it was like, Oh yeah. You know, he's, he comes across, I mean, he's kind of gruff uh but he he has you know good intentions you 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 get the feeling from him that he's always well intentioned that he's not um you know that he's he's not a selfish or arrogant person or anything like that but that he, he's a, a little rough around the edges maybe mm -hmm. but but yeah definitely likable 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I love his character in this one because, like you said, he's a he's a pretty nice guy. Every once in a while, he's like a little bit of a smarty pants because he's like mm. really he's like one of those smartest guy in the room kind of people. Sure. So, so every once in a while, he'll like throw a quip out there, and everybody else is just kind of like, "Yeah, you're right, but you, you didn't really have to say that," you know. <laughs> like the the army colonel looks at him like that a couple of times. And I love their back and forth, but again, we'll get to that as well. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of the sites, you know, they'll list James Donald, who played Dr. Roney as, you know, the the top billing here. And, you know, he was in a lot of stuff, too. I mean, he was in a ton of stuff as well. Yeah. um, I I mean, I recognized him for sure when I watched it again. You know, it was like, oh, yeah, what else has he been in? And I had to look that up, you know. uh Um, And uh, he was in, like, The Great Escape. That was one of my dad's favorite movies. So I saw that over over and over again. Bridge on the River Kwai, uh, Lust for Life. So, yeah, it was interesting that they gave him top billing over Andrew Kerr. Um, you know, I guess they felt like he had, uh, you know, better credentials at that point or was more recognizable. I'm not sure. Or maybe they that's how the agents worked things out. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, could be. But yeah, I mean, either way, you know, it's they're they're both, you know, two of the top people in this film here. And then I would say right there with them is Barbara Shelley, who, uh, you know, she's uh, plays Barbara Judd. So I thought, well, that's good. You wouldn't get her name wrong on the set then when you're Barbara, <laughs> Barbara, Barbara, Barbara. So that's cool. But she is um, a great hammer girl. She was in several hammer films. And I loved her in every one of them that she was in. And she's very good in this film. I enjoy her in this film a lot because, you know, there's a couple of small moments where she's sort of a bit of a damsel in distress. But there's also some moments where, you know, she's the assistant to Dr. Roney, you know, James Donald's character. And she's, you know, I feel like she's an equal to them, you know, him and, uh, you know, Professor Quatermass in this film that she's right there and giving her opinion and, you know, she's a bit of a scientist herself. So mm-hmm. I really I really did like her role in this film, you know, for, you know, late 60s. I, I think it's, you know, pretty good, you know, c- considering how <laughs> a lot of roles were still not that great back then. Yeah, I agree. I think she was not the typical, you know, uh, fainting maiden or whatever you want to, you know, mm-hmm. however you want to look at that stereotype. And And you're right, you know, she was the one to sort of instigate the research into Hobbes End, um, mm-hmm. understanding, you know, well, what was it that was going on here, you know, and trying to put all the pieces together, uh, mm-hmm. you know, to really start understanding how how is this thing that's been buried here connected to all this other strange activity over the years. So, uh, yeah, she was portrayed as a, you know, smart person herself, if even if she was not, say, a professor. So uh, mm-hmm. that was refreshing. Yeah, absolutely. And then <laughs> this next guy, I recognized him right away as well. And I love his character in this movie. Uh, Julian Glover is the actor's name, and he plays Colonel Breen, who is your typical. Um, I'm trying to think of how to describe him. He's very much. Uh, Someone even to this day who uh, is very much about like protecting, uh, you know, the the image of the country and the government and the military. He's 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 all about that. Like he's hardcore about, you know, there's an answer for everything and anything he doesn't believe in is rubbish. <laughs> right. He He's very traditional, mm-hmm. um, 
very, you know, he's a military man and that whole sort of antagonism between him and Quatermass, mm-hmm. you know, the science versus the military, sort of like the open mind, the inquiring mind versus <laughs> sort of the, you know, this is the way things are, you know, we're not, we're not considering these other things. This is, you know, this is what it is. Um, yeah, that, that was an interesting relationship and they could have, I mean, he does come off as a, a bit of a, um, jerk, but he also comes off as, you know, he has his job and he's trying to do his mm-hmm. job and, and yeah, he's trying to protect the country and so on. And, you know, so while you could look at him on a one hand and be dismissive and say, oh, he's just this, you know, army twit. Um, there's a little more to him than that, which I think is good. You don't want to just have these sort of uh, one-dimensional characters. Yeah, and of course, like you mentioned, when he and Quatermass go back and forth a, a few times in the movie, they're very good. You know, uh, th- he's a very good antithesis for uh, Professor Quatermass. I, I love their back and forth because Quatermass is more of the, you know, uh, free thinker, open mind. Let's mm-hmm. study. Uh, let's study this. Maybe it's this. Maybe it's that. Where. Colonel Breen's just like, yeah, no, that's not what we're going to do. Everyone's got to be <laughs> by the, you know, by the book. And this is how we're going to do it. And there's, you know, there's a manual for everything in his mind. So uh, I do really enjoy those two uh, uh, battling back and forth in this film. But uh, one of the other people I recognized was an actor. His name's Duncan Lamont. Um, <laughs> and he had a really small part in a Hammer film. Uh, Frankenstein created woman. <laughs> I remember him from that one. He is... Hmm. Uh, the the father of a young boy that you know we see the father get uh, beheaded at the beginning of the film because oh my. He's, yeah he's like this you know uh, thief and this and that you know so they put him to the guillotine right in the beginning of that movie and uh, and that's how I always remember him because he's a drunk and he, he's going to the gallows <laughs> and he's making all these jokes and everything like that with the priest and the two guys and he's going to get his head chopped off and that's always what I remember him from. <laughs> So who did he play in uh, Quatermass? So in this film, he was, I mean, I think they, I don't even know if they ever mention his name during the film, but uh, he's credited as, it's S-L-A-D-D-N, uh, Sladen, Sladen. Oh. And he, he is the guy that comes in with a drill and he right. tries to drill a hole into this object. And right. It doesn't work. And uh, he, he by the end of the movie, he does not end end well, no. end up well at the, <laughs> for this movie. But he's, yeah, I like his character quite a bit. He's He's got a good personality for like a, you know, a supporting player. I like it mm-hmm. quite a bit. So that, I mean, I, I did notice too, uh, and again, from that same other movie, uh, Robert Morris, and uh, he was Watson, <laughs> not Holmes and Watson, but uh, Watson was one of the other scientists towards the end of the movie that was operating the equipment when they had uh, the uh, headpiece on and it was feeding images to the computer. There was a guy okay. watching the images of the computer. They, they mm-hmm. Again, I don't remember them saying his name. They probably did mention Watson at some point, but Robert Morris is the actor, and <laughs> Robert Morris is, <laughs> so at the beginning of, Frankenstein created a woman when the actor Duncan Lamont gets his head cut off. His son, that's only maybe about 10 at the time, sees this happen. And this is a flashback. And then, of course, we move to the future when the 10-year-old son has grown up uh, and is a man. That's the grown-up version is Robert Morris. The actor huh. is in that movie. So they're both in Boy. that one and this one. Too funny. <laughs> well, they, you know, they had a, a 
pool of actors, I suppose they went back to, you mm-hmm. know, to... And, yeah. And that was both, I think both of the films were 67. So that kind of makes mm. sense. Yeah. <laughs> that makes it even more likely. Mm-hmm. Oh, and, then to, yeah, and then towards the end, uh, too, there was a scene in a church with a vicar and that is a uh, Thomas Heathcote. And I recognized him as well because he's in another one of my favorite, uh, you know, films. And this one has uh, Cushing and Lee in it as well. And it's uh, called Night of the Big Heat. I don't know if you ever heard of that one, but that's no. a real... Yes, you would love this one. It's um, another... Yeah, it has several different names, but I think that was the original name. Um, Night of the Big Heat, 1960. Oh, boy, when was that one? That was, I think, earlier in the 60s here. Let me just take a real quick peek here. But it's it's really good. You would enjoy that one quite a bit. Very sci-fi. Huh. Um, very, but yeah, Cushing's in it. Lee's in it. I'm trying to think of who else is in that one. It's a, it's a really, really good movie. You'd like that one. But uh, 1967 as well. So, okay, there you go. <laughs> 67 was a big year for some of these actors. <laughs> you know, but. the only guy that I noticed uh, who later on would do some work I liked and I only noticed this because I was reading something that pointed it out. Uh, you know, in the beginning, when they're working down in the tunnel, there's a sort of a, a large guy with a like a pickaxe, and he's the guy that pokes through the wall, and then the skeleton is exposed. Mm, okay. That guy is Gareth Thomas, and if you ever um, watched. Or, well, there was a show, a BBC show called Blake Seven. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, which was a science fiction show. So he was Blake in Blake Seven, uh, but about 10 years younger <laughs> in, <laughs> in this scene. But he only gets like one reaction shot, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, if you blinked, you'd miss it. But I was reading some stuff that said, oh, Gareth Thomas. And I, so I had to actually like go and like, freeze the, <laughs> the blueberry like oh yeah i guess that is him and then go ahead so he very and he said he was uncredited in the film so he didn't even merit uh his name on the screen but wow. any blake blake seven fans can go back and and see him there yeah that's really cool i love seeing these little chestnuts of oh wait here's this guy i recognize that stuff's kind of awesome i love that about films <laughs> Yeah, just like the strangest little scenes. Probably mm-hmm. was probably was paid next to nothing for that. So, oh gosh, yeah, I can't even imagine. <laughs> it's, yeah, you know how it was. Their budgets were not great, so oh, I'm sure yeah. most of the the leading people were, you know, the ones that were uh, eating up uh, some of the <laughs> some of the, the 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 budget there, along with some, you know, some effects and things like that in these movies. So. Yeah. Um, yeah, he probably got uh, pennies. <laughs> right. Here's a sandwich. So, a sandwich yeah. and a beer. Pizza and beer for lunch, everybody. <laughs> That's what you're getting paid. <laughs> oh, so was that it for you for cast-wise? Is that all you you, you want to talk about? We can yeah, move pre- on? pretty much. I, I'm just surprised, like, when Julian Glover came on, I, I was like, I know the name. And mm. uh, and then I realized, oh, he was the guy that was in Indiana Jones and... Uh, the last crusade mm-hmm. and uh he was in empire strikes back and i had to look yeah. up stuff <laughs> and, and and like his older self 
I mean, it was funny. Maybe because of the mustache, too, kind of threw me off and everything. Mm-hmm. But I had to go and look it up. And it was like, well, I know the name, but how come he do- he doesn't look like what I'm thinking of? So, yeah, I had to, I had to go and, and look. And it was like, okay, I guess it is the same guy. But it, yeah, kind of threw me off because he didn't look like how I remembered him. Yeah, he, he again, he had that kind of face to me, too. I thought, I know I've seen this guy. And you look it up, and then you're like, Empire Strikes Back. I'm like, oh, yeah, he was on mm-hmm. the Death He was on the Death Star. <laughs> so I'm like, yep, that, he fits that role perfectly because it's mm-hmm. sort of, you know, he's kind of a, a, a snooty military guy. That's what he is in this one, too. So He's got perfect. it down. Mm-hmm. Yeah, why play out of type? You know, when people want you to play that role, just be like, okay, I'll play that role again. <laughs> But uh, I did want to say, too, the budget for this film was a little bit better than your typical Hammer film of the day, too. Uh, in today's money, it would be 4.53 million pounds. So that's not too bad, actually. Uh-huh. That's, that's, that's way better than Hammer was typically uh, <laughs> having for, for their films. Well, they did good. They did good with their budget. They scared the crap out of me as a kid. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, money well spent. So, <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, if you're ready here, I'll just... Uh, Blast away with a quick little uh, synopsis here, yeah. and then we'll get right into it. Okay. All right. While digging an extension in the London Underground, workers come across skeletal remains. Construction is halted, and uh, paleontologist Dr. Matthew Roney's team take over. They soon find a metal object that they initially think might be a bomb, but turns out to be an alien spacecraft of some kind. Roney's assistant, Barbara Judd, and Professor Bernard Quatermass, a rocket specialist who does experimental work for the Ministry of Defense, discover that much of the housing around the site was abandoned by its inhabitants 40 years ago because of strange noises and what was believed to be ghosts. Inside the spacecraft, they find the remnants of insect-like creatures, all now dead. In disturbing the craft, however, they release an invisible force of immense power. So thank you, Gary KMCD on IMDb. Appreciate that. <laughs> but that's kind of the, the big picture here, but there's a lot more going on than just that. So uh, why don't we just, you know, start right off here with, I got to mention the excellent title sequence. You know, this movie mm. that starts out with, you know, the title sequence and there's like a skull and it's like almost like puzzle pieces that are being put together to make a full skull. It starts out with just one or two and, you know, it's a queer mass experiment and hammer films and the music. It's just really a, a good, a great, I shouldn't say good, a great title sequence for this film. Yeah, it's it really uh, catches your eye and it's it's well done, gets gets things moving. And then they sort of zoom into the the eye socket of the skull <laughs> to, mm-hmm. to, you know, bring you right into the street in front of the um, the underground uh train station where they're doing the construction and everything mm-hmm. yeah like you said earlier too yeah they're they're you know digging the you know extend maybe a branch of the the underground train you know subway whatever you want to call it and you know they discover a skull and then another guy you know hitting the wall with a pickaxe and there's an entire skeleton there and that's when it's just like oh something's up here we we need to give somebody a call here that knows what's going on because obviously construction crew isn't the type of people you want uh, you know, messing around with fossils. <laughs> <laughs> so that's when, you know, like we said, we meet uh, our uh, Dr. Roney and uh, his assistant, uh, Barbara Judd. You know, they come in and they start, you know, uh, investigating. And not long, it's a, a little old woman comes over that's part of the team. She looks like she's old enough to be their grandma, but she's still working. <laughs> so God bless her. And 
she's like, oh, there's something metal over here. And she's like, is it, you know, a, a water line? And there's a guy there with all these, you know, uh, blueprints. And he's like, no, no, there's no water lines near here. And she's like, you know, is it sewage? And he's like, no, no, no. And all of a sudden it clicks with somebody, you know, hey, this maybe this is a bomb that came down in World War II that got buried down here. Because, of course, you know, yeah, the UK did get hit pretty good in World War II. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It, it's it's pretty funny. I mean, you have to put it in the context of the times and everything. But uh, thinking about, oh, yeah, they had all those V2s and bombs and everything being dropped on them by the Germans. And so, you mm-hmm. know, who knows what could have been buried in the mud and, and muck and everything there. And, uh, yeah, you can just see a little bit of the, the metal, the casing. It always looks like a sort of a dark greenish color to me. Um, Mm -hmm. and, uh, yeah, you know, they're, they're trying to figure out if it's a pipe and, uh, I think it's interesting. They bring that bomb squad in Mm -hmm. and the first thing that always struck me was the guys trying to put the, what looks like the little stethoscope on there to Mm -hmm. hear and it, it doesn't stick. So, you know, it's not magnetic. So it's like, Oh, what is it? What is it made of? Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was uh, Captain Potter, played by Brian Marshall. He was the, the lead guy for the, the bomb squad there that came in. And <laughs> it's funny how uh, Dr. Roney kind of says to him, like, you know, how long is this going to take? We want to get back to our <laughs> digging in here. And the guy's just like, hey, calm down, buddy. And he's like, listen, you know, you're kind of young for this job, aren't you? And the guy's like, yeah, what do you want? Somebody else to come in here and look at it? He goes, yeah, I would love a second opinion. And he goes, well, don't worry. I'm going to get somebody in here for a second opinion. And then <laughs> I love this. The scene switches to, you know, an office at the Ministry of Defense. And this is when we see uh, our buddy uh, Andrew Kerr as uh, Professor Quatermass. He's in a meeting with uh, his superior, who's uh, just a uh, howl is uh, what he's uh, called in this uh, credits. And it's uh, played by Peter Copley and uh, our buddy as well, Julian Glover, Colonel Breen, Colonel the three Breen. of yeah, the three of them are having a little meeting there, and they're informing uh, Professor Quatermass that his uh, rocket uh, division at the Ministry of Defense is kind of being, I don't want to say taken over, but uh, the uh, the mission statement has changed from let's, <laughs> let's build rockets and go out into space for discovery to uh, let's build rockets to go out into space and put missiles on the moon and maybe even Mars so, you know, we can bomb somebody. And he that does not sit well with him because— uh, he doesn't want to go down that road. And obviously, hey, at this point, it was only, you know, just over 20 years since World War II. He's thinking, haven't you learned anything? Let's let's explore. Let's not think. Let's put bombs somewhere. Yeah. And, and you know, that's one of the themes I think comes out in the film is this idea of um, sort of this, you know, the science pacifistic sort of route versus this aggressive militaristic route and and you're right it had only been 20 years which is kind of mind-boggling to think you know oh they're making this movie just 20 years after world war ii ended and and of course you know it was the cold war and and there was that idea of like well you know somebody's going to put bombs in space above our heads so it might as well be us we we need to have our bombs over overhead so mm-hmm. you know it's it and it's not like things have changed that much unfortunately Mm-mm. um you know there's still this sort of lunacy of i don't know you know we used to call things mutual assured destruction mm-hmm. mad um yeah. 
you know, I think about something like this, like this film, and then I just recently had rewatched uh, Doctor Strangelove. Mm. And, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think there's always this. I don't know. Maybe we're all driven by paranoia um, as a species. You know, we've got to protect ourselves, and so then we do things that maybe instigate actions against us. But uh, mm-hmm. yeah, it's interesting to see Quatermass and his interaction with Breen, and uh, his utter frustration <laughs> <laughs> with these the military man and the politician. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you can tell right from the get-go they're going to be like oil and water because I, I think Quatermass, you know, he says, you know, like, oh, everybody's going to put uh, missiles on the moon, so we must as well, huh? Mm-hmm. And and Breen looks at him, Colonel Breen, and he's like, of course. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm like, oh boy, this is you you know right from that moment the two of them are going to be butting heads through the rest of this movie. <laughs> Yeah, I love it. I love they're, it. And they're, they're just good. so far apart, you know. Mm-hmm. Yep, it, it's very, very good. I love it. So, you know, the phone rings, and uh, that's uh, 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 the guy at the bomb squad, uh, Captain Potter, that's at the site, and he calls in uh, Colonel Breen here because that's what he is. He's a little bit older of a gentleman, and he was in World War II, and he was a bomb expert and you know, into missiles and all that kind of stuff, and so they call him in because he's, you know, the air quotes expert. And, uh, you know, like you said, he shows up at the site and I do like how he comes in right away and tries to take over and push uh, Dr. Roney out. Like, what's he, <laughs> well, what's he doing here? He doesn't belong here. Get him out of here. And I feel bad because, you know, Dr. Roney, you know, got this discovery here of these ancient, you know, bones and fossils and everything. And it's like this discovery of a lifetime. And then, of course, the military comes in and says, yeah, get out of here. <laughs> Yeah, he's very dismissive of Roni. And uh, it's kind of funny because, you know, Breen is is all all military and very dismissive of Roni. But Roni also, in a lot of ways, exemplifies sort of the absent-minded professor, mm-hmm. uh, especially when, you know, uh, the soldiers are rooting around trying to uncover more of the rocket and they find a, a skull kind of wedged into the, the part of the rocket or this ship, whatever you want to call it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and Roni just sort of like, he gets so excited and so focused on that. And he's, he's just like oblivious to everything else that's going on. And, and, you know, he's like, Oh, this is, this is fantastic. This is great. And he's just <laughs> all, he, you know, the, the soldiers are all kind of rolling their eyes at him and everything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He's a little nutty professor in this one, but it's, it's so funny because, even with all that, it's just he's almost like a little kid, you know, when you, mm-hmm. you get a, you get a new toy on Christmas morning and just just the exuberance they have for it is just <laughs> it's just off the charts sometimes, especially with something that they've really been wanting, you know, and that's how he is with these uh, fossils and bones. But he's going to find something even more interesting a little bit later on in the film <laughs> that makes him go even a little nuttier. So. <laughs> uh, but we'll get to that. But uh, yeah, so. You know, like you said, they they then, you know, try to use like a stethoscope to listen, you know, air quotes to this bomb. And the guy's like, there's no ticking. There's nothing going on here. And, you know, they can't really figure out what they've got here. So, you know, Colonel Breen's like, all right, well, we're going to, you know, dig all night. I'm going to get extra people in here. We're going to dig out what's going on here because, you know, he's still of the mindset that this is, you know, an unexploded, undetonated bomb rocket or something of some sort that, you know, there's this danger there. And. Meanwhile, Quatermass, he's not so sure what's going on here. And he kind of like pals up with 
Dr. Roney and his assistant, uh, Barbara Judd. And the three of them kind of, as the movie go on, get closer and closer into a camp of thinking this is what's going on. And then you have Colonel Breen and the, the, the military people and the, the political types that are like, no, 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 that's that's foolishness. Don't even talk about that. It's it's a it's a weapon of some kind. And we're going to figure this out. So I do like that divide uh, through most of the movie here. And it's it's mm-hmm. this is where this is where it's really born right here. And, you know, like we said, with Quatermass talking about the space race and him against Colonel Breen. But there is an interesting part there, too, where, you know, they say about the houses in the area being abandoned and there's right. a, a local cop there. And he says, uh, that's not actually true. He says to Quater mass and, uh, Barbara Shelley's character, Barbara Judd, he's like, that's not true. He's like, those houses were actually evacuated way before world war two. And they go out topside from, you know, the London underground to look around and he shows them the houses and they go over and they start looking through one of the houses. And there are some like the, they almost look like scratch marks or claw marks. Yes, they're so creepy. Yeah, and this is and and the cop starts like sweating profusely, and you know, Quatermass is even like, "What happened here? What's going on here?" And like, "What could have made those marks?" And it's too much for the cop to handle. He starts to get this real uneasy feeling, and he goes booking out of these houses. And this is where this the film kind of starts to deviate just from being you know a sci-fi film into you know the horror genre. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's one of the more effective sequences in the film. I mean, there's several of them, but it's when you really start to feel like, oh, what's what's going on here? You know, you thought you were going down one path, one type of movie. <laughs> and then mm-hmm. it's like, oh, maybe this is a different type of movie, you know. And, uh, yeah, the way that whole thing is staged, like you said, with them walking in the house and the cop becomes increasingly you know, more agitated. He's, he slowly kind of unravels, you know, and Mm -hmm. at one point they even have this door that slowly creaks (laughs) close. Uh, It's just perfect, you know, and as he kind of bolts out and then he, you know, he says, Oh, I just, uh, sorry. It must've been the, the, I think he says like, it must've been the, the heat in there or something Mm -hmm. ludicrous. Right. (laughs) Um, but yeah, that, you know, it was just so effective. They don't have to show anything really. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, you, you're sitting there left wondering like, why are all the walls scratched up? And, you know, why did all the people leave? So the mystery is introduced. And that's one, another thing about this film is there's sort of a mystery, a puzzle going on throughout mm-hmm. the course of it, right? There's, yeah, that has to be solved. Yeah, it's almost like there's you, you almost think there's two of two mysteries at this point, but these things are related that we'll find out about down the road. But yeah, as of right now, it seems like they're two different things. But I do like too how uh, uh, Barbara Judd, uh, you know, when her and Quatermass are outside, she does call attention to, you know, the street name is called mm. Hob, Hobbs Lane. And she's like almost like that's slang for, you know, the devil. So that's right. interesting, too. I do like that part. Mm-hmm. I almost thought they were trying to set up you know, Quatermass and uh, Miss Judd here as, you know, like almost love interest for each other. They kind of have a look and a smile, but it never really goes down any of those roads at all. And I'm kind of glad it didn't because that I I wouldn't say it would have ruined the movie. That's not what I'm going to try to say. But to me, it definitely would have taken away from another part of the movie, you know, to cut scenes in or whatever that, 
it, it wouldn't have helped the movie at all. I think it would have been a little bit of a lesser movie because of that. Yeah, I think you're right. I think it keeping it on more of a professional level mm-hmm. and, and also just, you know, is there a need for a romantic subplot? Eh, I don't think so. No, <laughs> you know? no, not 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 in this film whatsoever. I don't I don't think so at all. I think everything, you know, all the relationships in this film were were really spot on. I, I really like and like I said, I, just because there's a female character, an attractive female character there. She doesn't have to be interested in anybody. She can just be interested in the work. That's okay, too. <laughs> Good point. Yeah. So I do like to, like, one of the very next scenes, we see uh, Quatermass. He goes to visit uh, Dr. Roney and his team at this, uh, it almost looks like just like an office building somewhere. And they're, you know, this is the late 60s, but they're very much into, like, electronics and analysis and they almost seem like maybe like evolutionary scientists or something like that. And it's, it's really cool scene where they're in this, like, I don't know what called a lab, but you know, they have a guy sitting in a chair and he's got this crazy uh, helmet Ooh, on and yes. he's got all these wires attached to it. And they're trying to say how they're trying to, you know, figure out what's going on with this guy in this guy's brain when he's like doing a puzzle and stuff like that. And for mm-hmm. 1967, I thought that was pretty cool. I really liked that part of the film. Yeah, it was interesting. It, it, I, on one hand, I'm like, well, does Roni study both? Like, uh, is he an anthropologist and a neurologist? But you know, maybe he's got other people <laughs> in his lab, and and you know, they're setting us up for other things they're going to develop later, mm-hmm. um, other technologies. But yeah, it was. I think you know, all part of him trying to understand man's evolution. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know it added to the plot it wasn't yeah it wasn't distracting no not at all and then at at some point too or right around here they kind of dig out the entire ship vessel whatever you want to call it that's underground and you know colonel breen still tries to act as if uh oh no no this is some kind of experimental german thing and Quatermass mm-hmm. is like listen dude that's not what that is and uh they kind of have a a little bit of a tiff again there, but I do like at one point where I think it's back when they're at the, uh, uh, Dr. Uh, Roney's, uh, with his team, he kind of says to him like, well, why haven't you been down at the site? And he's like, Oh, your colleague doesn't like my face. <laughs> so I guess, uh, Colonel Breen was like, yeah, you don't belong here. We don't want you here anymore. So he kind of kicks him out and Quatermass is just like, mm, yeah, he's not my colleague. Like we are, we work at the same department now all of a sudden, but yeah, he's not my colleague. So I do like that part as well. Like Colonel Breen's asserting more of his authority here, which, you know, seems that he can kick everybody out of there at this point if he doesn't like mm-hmm. them other, other than Quatermass, which, you know, it, eventually Dr. Roney and his team start to make their inroads back at the, the dig site. And then once everybody kind of goes away a little bit later, they come back fully because <laughs> they can. <laughs> right. Mm. Yeah. But at some point too here now, uh, Colonel Breen thinks it's going to be a good idea to bring in this crazy high power drill to try and drill inside of, uh, this metal object. Uh, and oh, yes. that is a crazy scene. So the, the guy coming in with the drill is, you know, uh, our buddy Duncan Lamont here. Uh, he, uh, comes in his character and he's got this crazy drill and it's all set up. Like it's gonna, you know, you think you can drill through anything with it. And I do like how <laughs> he's talking to Colonel Breen inside, like, I don't know, would you consider it like a cockpit almost of the ship or something? There's like this little, 
little spot they got into, but they want to get into the ship further. And they, you know, there's like a wall kind of block. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's interesting because there's obviously like an opening that mm -hmm. leads into the ship. They, they didn't make it because like they said, like they had the, the um, acetylene torch and they had the diamond uh, drill or whatever they tried to cut with and they couldn't mm -hmm. get in with any of that. <clears throat> so we're led to believe there was just this opening there <laughs> that they were able to access the interior of the ship that, yeah, I don't know. It's like mm -hmm. the middle, middle part of the ship. So it's some sort of hold or something, cargo hold, or I, d I don't know. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah. And I thought it was interesting too, that um, the, uh, the soldiers, when uh quarter mass is going to go in, they, they tell him, no, you got to put these gloves on. And uh, because I guess when they physically contacted that interior, they got what was equivalent to like frostbite. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and, and there's certain things that happen in the film that are never really quite explained, but I think it's, you know, it's sort of like the charm of it. Like you're just left to your imagination to wonder like, oh, what was it about the substance of the ship that, you know, when you touched it, it would affect your, your skin that way, you know? Yeah. And there were all these mysteries about, you know, what was it made of and, like even later down the line, there's certain things that happen with the ship that make you wonder if it was actually, you know, alive in some ways. So it it, it was interesting, yeah, that, you know, um, they were able to access it and, and then the guy brings in the drill. I think Quatermass had suggested to Breen using this, uh, I wrote it down, Bor Borazon. Mm. drill whatever that is <laughs> so <laughs> supposed to be harder than diamond so yeah and he had that whole frame set up to hold the drill bit and everything mm -hmm. um yeah and then you know hilarity or chaos ensues <laughs> yeah it was funny too when when he's setting up the drill he says to colonel breen oh uh, <laughs> yeah he's like yeah i had a job and i did this this and this it was a secret job like this <laughs> and colonel breen looks at him and goes well, I'm glad you didn't talk about it. He yeah. walks away. And I love that part because that's it, it, it's humorous, but it's kind of snippy too. Like it, it just does fall in line with Colonel Breen. Yeah. His delivery on that was perfect. It was just like so like <laughs> withering and British and perfect. Mm -hmm. and, well, I'm glad you don't talk about it. It was just like, oh, God. <laughs> that's great. But, you know, this is my only nitpick of this movie where. He starts to try to drill into, you know, the interior of the ship mm -hmm. and he tries and it looks like nothing happens. And then he tries again and then stops and then tries a third time. And it's somewhere in between the second and third time when he's doing it. Uh, I just feel like a little bit with Andrew Kerr and a lot with uh, Julian Glover's character. I, I understand they're trying to use uh, body language and their facial expressions to, um, you know, uh, let the viewers know that there's some kind of crazy sound emitting when they're trying mm -hmm. to use this drill that's very uncomfortable and uh, causing a lot of discomfort. But <laughs> I just feel like they were a little over the top with that. In that you scene. know, Billy, <laughs> I have in my notes, Breen's eyes are rolling up in his head. <laughs> it, yeah, it it was a little bit much. Um you know, I don't know. You you wonder if the director is like, you really got to sell it. You got to sell it. I, mm -hmm. I don't know. But yeah, it was 
it was a lot that's for sure um yeah i can that's, i can i can see your point that's it though that's my only nitpick the rest of the movie nothing happened that i thought oh that's kind of or no maybe they should have done that's it. That's my one gripe. So no more complaining for me, but <laughs> we we can move on here. But it's funny how, you know, they both are like, or I should say both of them, the two of the them, you know, Quatermass and Breen. And then they're like, let's take a break. And the two of them and, uh, you know, uh, Duncan Lamont's character, the, the, the construction worker, you know, go outside and somebody else hops up and looks in. I can't remember if it's Roni or if it's that Captain Potter, one of them. I thought it was Roni. Yeah, I think it is. I think he weasels his way back in there, even though Bree doesn't want him around. He just comes running in and he's like, hey, what's going on here? You know, I thought you said you didn't get through with the drill. And they're like, what are you talking about? And they go back up and the drill. I don't think the drill did anything, but all of a sudden there's a hole there, probably about the size of a baseball. And yeah. it doesn't look like it was drilled from that side through the other side. It looks like melted, like from heat. So they're like, what is going on here? That looks like it's melted. And then now here's one of the scenes in the movie that you're like, okay, what in the world is going on here? We get the, uh, you know, the, the curtains pulled back and we get the space uh, locusts. So, yes, <laughs> yeah. What did you think of that scene? Oh, yeah. That's one of those scenes that you, you don't forget, you know, especially if you're like six or seven years old and mm -hmm. <laughs> that whole wall to the cockpit, it has the little cracks and then it, it sort of looks like they're on fire and it like burning and then that honeycomb mm -hmm. kind of crystal crystal arrangement inside there you know is visible with the big freaking grasshoppers or locusts or whatever <laughs> it's like oh my god yeah that was something else and i know you know i'm sure a lot of modern viewers would be like oh those look so fake well you know what they didn't look that fake years ago and and if you just use your imagination it's like hey they're from another planet you know mm -hmm. um i mean i don't know but i really would not be very comfortable with like three foot grasshoppers running around <laughs> um i don't even like the regular sized ones so <laughs> yeah the three inch you know. ones bother me <laughs> yeah so yeah when they when they showed that it was like and it's just so weird right because we're used to mm -hmm alien invasion movies in the past and so you know up to 67 what did we get we well we had things like you know we had the thing from another world so you got james arness in a suit or you've got the invasion of the saucer men so you've got little guys mm -hmm. you know we had war of the worlds when you know so you've got those were pretty far out aliens but mm -hmm. like giant grasshoppers this is just like one of the weirdest concepts ever you know it was bizarre. And of course, as you're the viewer, it's bizarre. And of course, <laughs> Quatermass and Breen are like, what the heck is going on here? <laughs> and then I love how they're like, it, then all of a sudden the, the, the honeycomb kind of breaks down. Yeah. And, you know, they explain it like, hey, you know, this was sealed. But once, you know, uh, the air got in there, it kind of broke it down. And Roni's like, whoa, hold on. Let me get one of these. <laughs> He's crazy space locust out of here. I need to check this thing out. And he's not phased at all. Yeah. And everybody else is like, oh, it stinks like, you know, rotten fish or something. They say. Everybody else is like really ready to barf. And he goes in there like arms wide open, like, you know, come on, let's go. Let's get this guy out of here. Oh, and they, they do get one of them out of there. And it does start to decompose rather quickly. But he sprays something on it to try to preserve it. And 
he's again his eyes are as big as saucers he's like a kid in a candy store with this and oh yeah there's well, no he's, fear at all he's, he's super excited i feel bad for the poor soldier who uh they're like well get you know put get something for us to put it on and he's got a board and then he's got some some sacks and you know he's trying to put the sacks on the board and he's getting underneath the decaying martian and it's dripping this green gunk and it starts <laughs> dripping on the poor soldier and he's oh. freaking out you know and yeah it's just you, you know you can see everybody around is like you said they're all about to barf mm -hmm. and uh even even quatermass looks like he's barely holding it together but roni is just like oh this is fantastic look at this you know mm -hmm. um but yeah when they start showing the the green stuff oozing out of the Martians that then it was just like, Oh, that's gross. <laughs> that's yeah. That's nasty. I did forget to mention too, at some point, one of the, like, you know, just regular soldier guys, um, a couple of them went up into like that little, you know, cockpit area or whatever you want to call it on the ship. And one of oh, them yeah. just starts screaming right. as if he's seen something and he just goes completely insane and they have to like take him out of there. And, you know, Breen is very, very cold about it. You know, he's like, mm -hmm. get that man out of here. And it was obviously the confined space. He probably, he should have never been on this job to begin with. And it's like, whoa, dude, the guy's like, seriously, like having some very bad trauma here. And, you know, he's just very cold about it. And, you know, they take the soldier out and they ask him, you know, what he saw. And he's trying to explain what he saw. And then, uh, Miss Judd, you know, Barbara Judd, she says, oh, was it like a small dwarfish type thing? And he's like, yeah, how did you know? And she's been doing some research on, you know, some of the uh -huh. trouble at Hobbs Lane that, you know, made the people move out of there years ago. And a lot of people are saying about, you know, seeing a ghost or seeing these little creatures and this and that. So, you know, again, here we go with the, the, the sci-fi and uh, the horror elements, you know, like kind of moving more towards each other instead of being two separate things here. But um, I did forget <laughs> to mention that <laughs> when uh, they do see the uh, space uh, grasshoppers for the first time, uh, when the one kind of moves, when the honeycomb starts breaking down, of all the people there, Colonel Breen jumps back. You know, the, the, hard, <laughs> the hardened you know, World War II soldier, he's the one that kind of jumps out of a little bit of surprise or fear. And Quatermass and Roni are just looking at it like, whoa, and they don't move or jump. And he did. I just that was one of the things I just literally noticed on one of these last couple of viewings that I never noticed before. And I'm just like, oh, that's funny. You know, maybe it's just one of those things that you don't notice when you watch mm -hmm. just for fun. But when you're watching it to try to look for things to talk about, it catches your eye and it caught my eye. I thought, oh, that's funny. <laughs> yeah, the, the tough, hardened military man. And he doesn't seem to know what to do here. You know, he seems very befuddled by all of this. I think internally his mind is churning and he's thinking, you know, there's got to be an explanation for this because I'm a military guy and there's an explanation for everything. And we, he's, he's kind of already, you know, making some, uh, uh, making up some excuses for things in his head where you have the two scientists that are like, wow, this is great. You know, let's figure this out. We know what to do. We're going to do this test and we're going to do that. And at that point, too, I did. I almost <laughs> fell off the couch. I hear Quatermass say that, you know, oh, these things, you know, they're decomposing. And then they start to think, well, maybe they were here on Earth, you know, how many years ago? And but they've sealed themselves in here. Why would you think they would do that? And Quatermass mentions 
oh, maybe there were changes in the climate. And I thought, what? <laughs> I couldn't believe he said that. It was just like, you know, again, it's you and I talked before we started recording about some parallels to, you know, when this movie was made and what they were talking about in this movie to, you know, current year. It's just yeah. it, it, a few things really stood out to me that was like, OK, and that was one of them. I was like, he basically just was talking about climate change. I'm like, wow, mm -hmm. OK, 1967. He's talking about it. <laughs> yeah. And there's uh, another reference, I think, to climate change a little bit later, which uh, was kind of it stood out to me. Mm -hmm. um, but I don't think we're quite there yet. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, it's just funny. Some of the, it's wild, some of the stuff that, that comes up. But, you know, it's, it's like a, a lot of things, you know, they don't change that much over time. <laughs> no. And the next thing I want to talk about definitely hasn't changed and probably never will. So <laughs> right right away, the scientists get their, you know, uh, space, you know, grasshopper and they're taken to a lab and they're going to check it out and figure it out and find out this mystery. And we see uh, Colonel Breen goes back to the Ministry of Defense and uh, there's eventually a crowd of people outside reporters and they want to know what's going on. And Quatermass is just like, well, if they want to know what's going on, let's just tell them. And he goes out there and tells them and they print up their newspapers that there's a spaceship and there's aliens and all this stuff. And Quatermass gets called into the Ministry of Defense and they have him explain what he thinks is going on. And Colonel Breen has already been there and briefed all these people on what he thinks is going on because this has got to be a German propaganda and this and that. And right. I, I think to myself, yeah, so the scientists want to investigate and want the truth to come out. And the government wants to cover it up and smoke, <laughs> smoke screen everything that's going on. I'm like, huh, interesting, isn't it? <laughs> that's pretty funny. Yeah. And, uh. and sort of this battle between, you know, well, what's what's the truth? You know, and who's mm -hmm. going to control that? Right. Who's going to control? The yeah. Truth? Yeah. It's almost like the government want, doesn't want they want the truth to be what will make them come out of this looking well and not make anybody panic. And even if that means not telling the truth or distorting something, they just, they want to keep the peace. They don't want anybody to get too excited. And it's like, mm -hmm. no, how about you just tell the truth that if some people get too excited about it, then help them out. But you know, <laughs> how about just staying, saying the truth, what's really going on here. But I found that like uh, a little too uh, <laughs> close to home these days. I thought that was another one. I'm like, yep, that fits right in in uh, 2022. But at this point, Colonel Breen has the superiors convinced that there is no danger. There is no problems. Um, we can clear out of that area and they can go back to digging the underground, uh, you know, uh, train or subway, whatever you want to call it. The London Underground can continue on. And in the meantime, too, we had uh, uh, Quatermass and Miss Judd who uh, were digging deeper into what had happened on uh in that area of Hobbs mm -hmm. Lane. And they're starting to see that years back, many, many years back, there were all these reports of, you know, all this uh, uh, phenomena going on there. You know, like we said, almost like a horror film, like psychic phenomena and ghosts and all these things, these crazy things going on there. So they're thinking to themselves, you know, instead of this being its own thing, maybe this is tied into somehow the, you know, the ship being under there for years, you know, maybe right. it's been under there for millions of years and, that's why since that area has been inhabited, there's all sorts of crazy things going on there. So what did you think of that? Yeah, you know, I thought that was um, 
this is one of the things that makes it such an interesting film, right? So there's the mm-hmm. connection to, um, you know, this sort of occult or horror aspect to it. Uh, you know, somehow this thing is influencing people, possessing people maybe. And then, you know, Quatermass and Roni are also discussing why did these Martians come here? What were they trying to do? And they start to develop, you know, this theory that they were dying out. We know that Mars is a dead planet, so maybe they were trying to find a way to still pass on something of them themselves, right, to, to us. And, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. you know, this, it's sort of like, I mean, you can see a poor version of this idea if you watch, you know, like ancient aliens, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, yeah. uh, on, on History Channel, I, which I will admit to, to doing from time to time. Um, but, you know, this concept of like colonization or that, that aliens may have visited Earth millions of years ago and tampered with our evolution is an idea that we see, you know, in science fiction um, and, mm-hmm. and is a concept that scientists often wonder about, you know. And, and a few years later after this film, uh, 2001 would come out and that would, I mean, that's the basic mm-hmm. concept of that film. So I, I find it kind of fascinating that this film um, had that idea and was propagating it in, in this, you know, in a very different way than, say, 2001 or... You know, years later, we had things like, um, um, oh, what was the, uh, I'm, I'm, I, it was right on the tip of my tongue, uh, the Aliens follow-up, Alien and Aliens follow-up that uh, Ridley Scott made. I have to oh, say. Oh, Prometheus. Prometheus. I did not care for Prometheus very much, but it, it was a similar concept about, mm-hmm. you know, tampering with human evolution. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's a, one of those things that, you know, people often, you know, wonder about, like, was there something that happened in our past? So, yeah, it's just interesting, you know, because on the surface of this film, you don't necessarily think about, it's, you know, you could think about, oh, there's this weird ship and these, like, grasshopper aliens and telekinesis and stuff, but then you get down to the details, and it's like, no, they were messing with, you know, our, our, ancestors and trying to pass something of themselves along and mm-hmm. yeah it's just creepy stuff yeah and it, i mean the film really takes off from here and, and gets into this final act where um you know uh, they they basically like i said once the military and everybody clears out at some point you know you have uh quatermass and roni and all those guys in that team and uh, barbara judd they're like well let's go back down there and, you know, hook up a bunch of our equipment and try to figure mm-hmm. out, you know, what's really going on here and do all these tests with all this, you know, you know, psychic phenomena going on. And we even have a part where Duncan Lamont's character is back down there, too. Oh, kind of yeah. Like he's cleaning up his equipment or what. And just absolute insanity ensues. You get stuff flying all around like it just, you know, maybe it's like, you know, ghostly type stuff going on and it drives him nutty. And he goes out there and crawls into a almost like a churchyard or like a graveyard next to a church and, and a vicar takes him in, but you know, they, they kind of figure out like, yes, something really is, is tied together here. And I do enjoy too, how, um, Roni 
you know, I, <laughs> I had forgotten. I hadn't seen the film in a while and I'd watched it like I, you know, like I'd said earlier a few times in the last month. And before that first time that I'd watched it again recently, I had forgotten, you know, what happens to Roni here at the end. So, mm. you know, absolute just insanity starts to happen when they're trying to tap into this force to, you know, really find out what's going on here between, you know, the alien ship and the aliens and the, the skeletons and everything they're finding down there. And, people just start going absolutely berserk almost like when they tap into this, you know, this force and just start going berserk and smashing things and fighting. It reminded me of that one Star Trek episode where they're on that crazy <laughs> world and it's like the red uh, hour. Yeah. People just go absolutely bananas. That's kind of what happens in this movie too. This is probably around the same time now that I'm thinking about it. That's That's a good point. Yeah. That's so hmm. funny, but yeah, it is a similar time frame mm -hmm. yeah so well, that's that's wild but that's a crazy scene there and that's that's what's going to get us right to the end here yeah i i really like the scene where the drill operator goes back and uh yeah the the force the presence whatever it is that sort of activates and i my impression is that it sort of activates those genes i'm assuming genes that were you know put in humanity you know, millions of years ago, mm -hmm. um, get triggered. From the aliens, yeah. Right, and so all this telekinetic stuff goes off, and and yeah, it's a lot like a poltergeist phenomenon, and mm -hmm. and it's it it focuses around him, and he's trying to get away from it, but it's like, no, dude, it's going with you, and <laughs> like he he runs up to this, I don't know if it's like a fish and chip stand or whatever, and <laughs> and all this stuff starts you know flying off, and all the people are you know panicked and then he he tries to get away from it but it's like no it's it's going it's following you buddy you're you're it and yeah that then he sort of winds up like you said you know in almost like a fetal position in the the churchyard and then the priest who takes him in is convinced he's possessed mm -hmm. um so that was that was some interesting stuff uh, <laughs> between you know Quatermass and the priest you know because then again it's it's science and reason versus you know, sort of tradition and, and a rigid system of thinking. Yeah. And, it's, uh, yeah. It's interesting. They don't really go down the road of like the science versus religion too much, but I do feel like they, the way they portrayed uh, Colonel Breen was that he was very uh, traditional in, you know, his thinking and stuff like that. So I, I, I feel like, you know, Quatermass and Roney, you know, were more of the evolutionary thinking and Breen would have been, and obviously the vicar were more of the, you know, creationist kind of people. Mm -hmm. So they were, they, they don't ever come out and have that argument or, or, or go down that road really, but that's, I, I think it's there in the background in, in the, who those characters are. And, um, at some point too, <laughs> when things, when the crap really starts to hit the fan, it, the military comes back. And Breen is there. And I had forgotten that this about what happened to him here at the end, too. Why don't you talk about that? <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, you know, they yeah, they they do their experiments in there. And Barbara, obviously, you know, um, was very powerful with her connection to the uh, machine, which will play out later. But, yeah, they mm -hmm. for some reason, they feel the need to show the ship to the public, which was like on one hand, it was like that's so stupid. But then on the other hand, you could see like the government making a decision like that. Right. Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. And, um, 
Yeah, so they decide they're going to show it, and then, you know, Quatermass is like, oh, no, you can't do this. He's trying to get everybody out of there. And uh, I was, I haven't been sure. I think it's because of what happens with um, uh, the electricians, and there's like some electrical lines, I think, that mm -hmm. um, hit the craft. And I think that's what sort of triggers it and gives it like this boost of energy, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, uh, and then you see that it starts glowing. And then when it's glowing, it's like turns white and there's all these veins mm -hmm. uh, through it, which has always creeped me out and made me think like, is was it somehow? Sentient. Or, yeah, yeah. Was it organic? I, I, you know, I always wondered about that. But then, like you said, you know, then all hell breaks loose because everybody gets triggered by that. And mm -hmm. all the psychic stuff starts flying around and things are flying through the air. And I love the, they have all this weird pulsing music or, or sound effects uh, when yeah. the machine is activated. And, uh, you know, it's definitely gives you a, a, a sense of, you know, I, I don't know what it would be like, just sort of paranoia or, or dread. Yeah, right. Dread is a good one. But yeah, poor <laughs> Breen gets sort of in, it's hypnotized or something by the machine and and winds up walking closer and closer to it. And the the raw energy, I guess, just fries him. Cooks him. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He looks pretty, pretty bad by the the end of the film there. And that was one of those images I remember as a kid, like seeing him with his face basically melting. Yeah. He looks like a baked potato that you leave in the <laughs> oven, like way too long. Oh <laughs> man. Yeah. He does not do very well. That's, <laughs> and it's funny, like why doesn't he run off with the rest of the, the crowd and, you know, start killing people? I don't know. He just, he becomes entranced. It's, it's weird. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, I love it's a, it. <laughs> yeah, it's another one of those things like it's not, not explained, but it's like it works, you know, because you just sit there going, why did that happen? But um, yeah, it's uh, it's effective. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so he gets killed. And yeah, like you said, too, earlier, like right before that, one of the electricians that was in there gets zapped and he gets killed, too. Mm -hmm. He gets like he gets cooked and, you know, it just it starts going bonkers, crazy. And at one point, it even starts affecting Quatermass, too, when oh, everybody's yeah. running around, smashing stuff, going wild. And we did uh, uh, miss uh, uh, Barbara Shelley's character, you know, Barbara Judd, Miss Judd. She kind of crept out at one point, too, because she seems, like you said, to be more affected by this than anyone. And she's in this, like, zombie-like state, and she's just kind of mm -hmm. wandering around while all this chaos is going on all around her. And, of course, Quatermass and uh, Roni are like, oh, where is she? Let's find her. And they do finally find her, but they also see this insane image above the, like, like almost spring out of this one uh, abandoned building there in that uh, Hobbs Lane area. And that is absolutely crazy. That was one of those images, too, that stuck with me. Oh, yeah. You never forget that image of the gigantic. It's it's like the Martian, the head. But, of course, the way those heads look with the horns on it and everything, it really does look like the devil. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and they, of course, look at it, and they're like, look. And, you know, they're like, how can we kind of defeat this thing? And, you know, like I said, Quatermass, he keeps kind of, like, getting a little snapping out about it. And, like, it kind of starts taking control of him um, at certain mm -hmm. points as well. So you're just like, okay, now what are you going to do? 
and <laughs> Dr. Roney can kind of snap him out of it a bit. But I, I do enjoy how it was, you know, even affecting like kind of the late, you know, lead main character here of the, of the movie. Like you thought, oh, God, what's going to happen when it if it gets him? Like, what's going to happen then? Right. He can barely control himself. Uh, it's interesting. That, like, yeah, Roni is unaffected. So, you know, apparently there's some people that don't have the gene or, or whatever it is. Um, and they, they're not influenced by whatever the Martian signals are that are being sent out. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, Quatermass is, is really struggling <laughs> to, to keep control. Mm-hmm. But, you know, he eventually does get control and him and uh, Roni uh, devise a plan here to try to uh, to stop this thing. And uh, it's it's kind of interesting. You know, it's like kind of an old school type, uh, you know, theory. But, you know, it does end up working. But I was really sad because I completely forgot about, you know, what happens to Dr. Roni here at the end. Why don't you talk about that? Right. So, yeah, they they see this huge image in the sky coming out of one of the you know, I think it's actually coming out of where this ship is at. You know, a lot of the buildings cave in and they did a lot of miniature work in the, this sequence where they show the, the neighborhood and buildings crashing down. And so I think this big cloud, I, they describe it, you know, Roni starts going, oh, you know, mass into energy, mass into energy. And he's thinking that, you know, the, the ship has transformed i guess into pure energy and has created that image of the martian in the sky and you know they start thinking what are we going to do and and uh roni says well you know the devil's enemy has always been iron like in uh, fairy tales and and stuff mm-hmm. and then they uh they realize oh there's this huge construction crane uh nearby and you know could they swing the crane into the the big uh, uh, cloud of the devil, and would that dissipate it, you know, ground it into the earth? Mm-hmm. And so, uh, as they're getting ready to go over to the crane, then all of a sudden, Barbara shows up, and she's still in that zombie like state, but uh, because she's so powerful with this, you know, Martian telekinesis or whatever, she's sending all this rubble flying at them and they, they're trying to figure out how are we going to stop her? So Roni sends Quatermass to try and deal with her while he goes and gets the crane. Um, and I've never quite understood, I guess maybe he couldn't get into the crane operator's little control booth mm-hmm. and just swing the crane over. So he, he winds up crawling out on the, uh, length of the crane and sort of rocking it back and forth. But then, uh, as all this massive destruction is going on in this this section of London, the actual foundation around the crane cracks and the crane starts to fall over. And uh, it's such a, a great shot because they show Roni sitting on the crane and he's starting, the crane is starting to tip over into the big devil's head. And he has such a look of like, heroic determination <laughs> on on his face as uh, the the tip of the crane where he's sitting slides over into the the uh, large cloud and uh, there's a massive explosion the crane bursts into mm-hmm. flames and falls over but it does dissipate the the cloud 
And then uh, we see on the street, both Barbara and Quatermask. Barbara seems to be snapping out of everything. And uh, mm -hmm. the assumption is that this has done the trick and, you know, people are coming back to normal. Um, but uh, yeah, we're left with Quatermass and Barbara standing in amidst this, uh, you know, rubble in London. A war zone. <laughs> yeah, looks completely wiped out. And, uh, you know, both of them starting to to recover but realize everything that's happened and yeah it's not you know there's not a happy ending per se i mean yes they defeated the thing but roni is dead and who knows who else is dead and mm -hmm. it's it's kind of a grim ending yeah yeah i mean and that's not even you know looking at it from the angle of you know the cover-ups and you know some of the other <laughs> implications about you know aliens and what's going on inside and yeah, it's like, man, you look at, like I said, Breen's dead. The guy got electrocuted. You know, some people were driven insane. Mm -hmm. I, it, did, it did at one point, too, show some guy when, you know, there was all that chaos going around. There was some poor guy, and it was a little strange. It almost looked as if there was a group of people that were, like, hypnotized by this force, and they were almost using some kind of psychic power to kill right. this one guy. He got, like, crushed by all this rubble. Like they were intentionally trying to kill the guy. And I was just right. like, is that what was going on there? It was a little difficult to understand. Well, he, I, I, my assumption is that he was another one of those. Because they talk at one point. I, we kind of skipped over the, the part where um, they recorded Barbara's vision of the Martians. Oh, yeah. And they uh, took that to the military. And they told them, well, you know, the Martians would call, uh, you know, what they considered like defectives from their their ranks you know mm -hmm. and so i think they were doing the same thing and so like people like roni who didn't have the the martian gene mm -hmm. they were you know they were killing them off and so yeah. they were using those psychic powers to to get rid of them um mm -hmm. yeah it's just you know they and it reminded me a little of um sort of like village of the damned maybe that maybe there's some other films too where you know you see these people with psychic powers and they just all stand really still and stare <laughs> at you <laughs> and you know meantime you know you're getting hit with all these even even like in uh i guess empire strikes back darth vader at some point when he's attacking luke he just stands still and starts hurling all this debris at him so yeah. that must be something if you've got telekinetic powers you just stand really still and stare at somebody well i'll tell you those uh movies you mentioned earlier though the creepy kids they creep me out more than vader so <laughs> <laughs> i love yeah. those movies there were two really good ones in the 60s i love those those are really good yeah those kids man mm -hmm. yep <laughs> little creeps <laughs> but um all right well that's that's about going to do it for uh, this movie here. But uh, so, yeah, there's a lot to uh, unpack with this movie. I mean, this is one of those movies that, like we said, a little bit of sci-fi, a little bit of horror or a lot of sci-fi and a little bit of horror. So mm -hmm. it, it really does give you a lot to think about here. And, you know, like I said, uh, repeat viewings to me, it still holds up very well because, you know, I think there's a, a very good cast. I think the acting is pretty good and the script was really good. You know, the source material from Nigel Neal was really good as well. Yeah. So. 
you know, I think this is definitely one people need to get out and see if they haven't seen it already. And again, I, I'm still seeing things. I probably watched that movie 50 times and I just noticed, you know, Breen jumping when that <laughs> the, the, the space grasshopper moves like an inch. And I just noticed that for the first time, you know, so it's it, you're going to see more to it every time you watch it. Yeah, I, I really enjoy it. And I would definitely recommend people to see it if they if you've never seen it. You know, you just have to remember when it was made, you know, and don't mm -hmm. expect you know, fantastic, super special effects. Mm -hmm. um, but if you if you can appreciate a good story and good performances, I think you'll be entertained by it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, context. Always context of the times. Always right. have to, to keep that in the back of your head. If, you know, you've, you know, you're more of a fan of newer movies, if you're going to give something a chance, definitely give it a chance, but keep that in the back of your head. Like the, the budgets, the effects, those, that was, it was the times. So I think, you know, for 1967, I think it's pretty good. Yeah, I think I think it's a great film. You know, it's got a lot of good real scares in it, if if that's your thing. And, um, you know, it does have sort of this mystery of like, well, what's going on? How are these two things going to come together? And, you know, part of watching it is seeing like how how they how they do come together and why and and everything. Mm -hmm. So I think especially. For a first-time viewer, I think that that would be the. Of course, we just told them the whole story, so. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I think there's still lots of benefit from watching it. Somebody would really enjoy it. Absolutely, yeah. To me, it's it's especially if you're looking in the direction of Hammer. This is this is a must-watch. You got to watch this one, and I'd recommend the whole trilogy. But definitely, if you were only going to watch one out of the three, I would watch this one just because I think this one just it it has a little bit better cast. Um, I think it does benefit from being in color compared to the other two that were black and white. You know, I think they would have benefited from color, but they're not in color. They're in black and white. So I think mm -hmm. that did did uh, make a bit of a difference, too. So, yep, get out there and watch this one. Like Karen said, there's a Blu-ray of it as well out there. So if you want to watch it all cleaned up and in, you know, really great shape, uh, that's the way to go. But uh, yep. all right. Well, why don't we wrap up here and uh, why don't you uh, let everybody know what's uh, going on in your world there? Like we said, you know, plan a date and then uh, where you're at on the social medias. Sure. So, yeah, if, uh, if uh, you're interested in if you like to listen to podcasts, you like to listen to podcasts about sci-fi and horror and fantasy films and TV shows. I do a, a podcast called Planet 8 with my friends Larry and Bob. And uh, we put out a couple of episodes a month. And uh, the show is on um, pretty much most apps now, uh, most podcast apps. Uh, you know, we're definitely on uh, iTunes and Spotify and Podbean and all that. So uh, mm -hmm. if people are interested, it's just Planet 8, um, Planet 8 Podcast. We're also on Twitter at Planet 8 Cast. Mm -hmm. uh, so you can find us there. And then uh, I I am pr pretty active on Twitter. And uh, I like to, to tweet about all these kind of things, sci-fi and comics and uh, uh, sometimes other stuff like music and, and so forth. And people can find me at Walker underscore KM. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, always happy to you know, have conversations with folks about all the different stuff that uh, us geeky people are, are into. 
And you can tell Karen and I are getting used to podcasting uh, together because she actually, right at the tip of her tongue, at the snap of a finger, knows her Twitter address. Too, so, yeah. <laughs> yeah, Billy didn't have to find it for me, so I'm, I'm especially proud of myself tonight. So. Mm-hmm. Yep, you're yeah. ready. You're, you're ready for these questions now. <laughs> I am. I'm, I'm on the third or fourth or whatever go round. I, I finally got my act together, so. So, all right. Well, thank you, Karen, for being on. This was a blast. And, uh, you know, you and I have talked about a couple other things. There's definitely at least one more thing between now and the end of the year I want to talk to you about. And I think I might, uh, it's going to be sci-fi related. And I think it's going to be something where I might do a, uh, a bit of a, a round robin. So I might have, uh, like maybe a 20 minute segment or so with three or four guests and uh, we're going to talk about a certain uh, television series that I'm very fond of from the 1960s. And, uh, (laughs) uh, you know, maybe we'll Uh, each guest will pick out, you know, a favorite episode and we'll talk about that uh, briefly and uh, make it like a little celebration there. So I'm thinking that's what we're going to do for sure. (laughs) Well, it sounds good to me. Always happy to uh, talk with you and record an episode on hammer or whatever we want to, Mm-hmm. talk about it's a lot of fun yep definitely you know hammer and then uh any kind of crazy sci-fi horror b movies mm-hmm. 50s 60s and uh definitely like i said uh you are definitely one of the people that's the biggest fan of one of these tv shows uh, that i'm talking about and i definitely what gotta have you be? on for that <laughs> what a 60s sci-fi show that i'm a big mm. fan of hmm, hmm. <laughs> You know, I'll have to just uh, wonder for a little while what it is. <laughs> well, there there seems to be one logical choice, but we can <laughs> yep. we can talk about that down the road. Mm-hmm. Yep, absolutely. That'll be a blast. So, <laughs> uh, all right. So once again, thanks, Karen. So uh, I appreciate you being on. And uh, I will be back in just a minute to wrap things up. All right, everybody, that's going to wrap up this episode. Once again, I want to thank Karen for being on. Great guest. Love having her on to talk with you know about these films, uh, Hammer, you know, horror, sci-fi, whatever. She's up for uh, any classics, which is awesome and very knowledgeable and you know very good guest. So definitely get out there and check her out on uh, Twitter, and then uh, look for her on the Planet Eight podcast as well. Uh, you know, as of this recording, they've got a pretty good backlog, and uh, they do lots of fun stuff there too. Films, television you know, different crazy uh, nerdy subjects. So uh, definitely get out there and give them a, a listen. All right, that's going to wrap it up for this one and I'll catch you next time.